0: The most sustainable option is the thing you already have. You don't need to go out and buy bamboo cutlery. If you've got cutlery at home, you can bring with you. Or, you know, you don't need the latest, like fancy schmancy water bottle. I mean, I love all that shit. I like, you know, I get it. You know, you want a feeling of newness. You wanna like, it refreshes you. And if that's what helps you get started or stay the course on your journey, do it. You know, that's awesome.
1: You're listening to the Maximum Enthusiasm Podcast, the exploration of life fully optimized with Megan Hotman. Today's episode is brought to you by show sponsor Champion System, basically the best company ever for your custom triathlon running and cycling apparel. My relationship with the folks at Champion System goes back about 20 years when its uh, owner, Jay Thomas, and I first connected when I began my cycling career back in Omaha, Nebraska in the early 2000s. And he's been supporting my cycling endeavors ever since. They definitely have a family culture. You'll notice that their team of folks in the company have been with them for years. There is not turnover like you see in other similar companies in this industry. And as a consumer and customer, that definitely makes life better and easier when you can establish relationships with the folks behind the scenes who are helping with your custom order, as well as your art and your production. So the whole team of Caitlin and Susan and Jay and Ben and Jesse and the whole group there, they're fantastic. I can't recommend Champion System enough also just in terms of the quality of the gear I have never once had a zipper break. Uh, the chamois in the cycling shorts are amazing. The run gear is fantastic. And the, the most fun part, of course, is that you get to design your own custom art and wear it when you are out training or competing. Um, they also now ship directly to your door and will organize your team orders so that everyone in the team can get their orders directly. So no more unpacking big boxes of apparel for your organization and then having to orchestrate the pickups with everyone. Um, I've certainly done my fair share of that over the years, and it's really nice not to need to do that anymore. Um, Champion System is based in Nebraska, in Lincoln. So if you ever make it back to Gravel Worlds or to um, the new event that Champion System is uh, putting on Definitely make sure that you stop in and check them out. They're just a really wonderful company, and I can't, I really, again, can't recommend them enough. So, if you want to visit their website and learn more about them, go to champsys.com. That is champ-sys, com, and give them a look, check out their website, shop all their products. Um, you will also find some of our custom gear on their custom apparel site where you can check out some of the designs that we've done. And if you place an order, be sure to give us a holler, let us know how it went, shoot us a note on our website or in a comment section on one of our posts. We'd love to hear about your experience with Champion System. Thanks so much to Champion System for being a show sponsor. Hey listeners, welcome back. I am so excited to bring you today's guest, Ashley Piper, author of the book Give a Shit, Do Good, Live Better, Save the Planet, a practical handbook. She is a political strategist turned vegan and eco-lifestyle journalist and television personality, a regular contributor to Women's Health, ABC, CBS and Glamour among others. Ashley lives in Chicago with her shelter dog, Banjo, who she just told me this morning is 15. This woman is a total joy and a light. I could tell just from following her online and reading her book that I absolutely needed to meet her and getting to interview her for the show was a total dream come true. She's just such a powerhouse and a force in this fight for climate change, which of course affects all of us. I want to start by reading a statistic from her book that just shocked me. Um, By the way, I folded a lot of the pages in her book to come back and reference. So it's one of those kinds of books that if you buy and own and underline and fold pages, it's one that you can keep coming back to as a resource um, as I have. She writes, Americans create almost four and a half pounds of trash per person per day. That's like carrying around a 30 plus pound weight each week which is a 169% increase from our waste creation in 1960. We can thank many things for the skyrocketing phenomenon, an increased national focus on convenience, busier lives, and the general accessibility of throwaway options. Fortunately, it's super easy to avoid disposables in the wild. Whether it's your morning coffee, evening cocktail, building a chic, sleek, and totally essential arsenal of reusable swag, will help you refuse that refuse and look like a sustainability siren. So as you can tell, her writing style is super lovely and awesome. Her vocabulary is so varied. It's just such a fun read with occasional swear words mixed in, um, which adds total flavor. And having now talked with her and met her, it's exactly her personality. So it's really joyful to basically read a book that's Um, in her voice and in her tone. And um, it is intended to be a practical handbook. So I really appreciate the way that the book breaks down basically the areas where we can confront these topics, like in your home, in the kitchen, in your closet, in the mirror and out in the wild. Um, We touch on a topic today in our interview that really had not occurred to me until Ashley said it, which is that sustainability is self-care. And she talks at the end about climate anxiety and how it's now affecting um, 70% or so of us, although she thinks it's, it's higher. And I can certainly speak to that as part of my own personal experience. The more books like hers that I read, I read another one by Sarah Wilson called um, Your One Wild and Precious Life. Um, As I watch these documentaries uh, and, you know, kiss the ground and recently listened to Rich Roll's podcast with an oceanographer talking about the very uh, precarious status of our oceans. You know, I, I definitely my sleep is hijacked pretty frequently from these topics and thinking about the magnitude of these problems that we've created and the slow, slow, slow response to try and turn these things around. And um, she says that sustainability is self-care, meaning that if we are at least doing the things that are within our power to do, it helps us corral that anxiety and instead convert it into productive action and motion. And just doing the small steps that we can do, reusable plastic bags for grocery shopping and minimizing our animal and meat consumption, being very conscientious with our purchases and using what we own before we buy more stuff, you know, doing things like that on a day-to-day basis, it becomes self-care because it can combat the anxiety that we feel about this overwhelming climate crisis problem. So uh, for that reason alone, I really hope that you enjoy the show and get some great takeaways from it. I hope that it will help you feel more as a contributor to this um, problem and solution, and um, that you'll also just feel really inspired by Ashley, the way that I am and and hearing more of her story and her evolution into this space of being a sustainability expert. I just love the journey that she's on and um, the impact that she's having. And I also just want to lift her up and sort of sing her praises on the show by just simply saying that people who are on the front lines of these things that we're dealing with, whether it's bike advocacy, sustainability, climate um, change, you know, they do and are susceptible to a lot of negativity especially online in the comments section. And it's really important. I feel that we just keep lifting them up and telling them thank you for their work. It's often thankless. It's often not associated with any pay or compensation. It's often tiring. It's often very David and Goliath uh, feeling. And yet, especially in Ashley's situation where she's talking about doing things to save our planet, there is literally no, Um, undertaking or cause you know more important than this. So please follow her on Instagram. She is just such a delight to follow along with. I will have links to her website, her TED talk, her book and some of the other things that we talk about some of the companies that she suggests for recycling on the show notes. And again, you can find all of our links and content for these shows at our website, which is MaximumEnthusiasm.com. And it'll also be in the show notes posted on Apple Podcasts. So thanks so much for tuning in. And just a final um, note to say that if you or your company would like to sponsor one of our show episodes, we would be so grateful. And we would love to have the opportunity to tell our listeners all about you. So please contact me via the website Use the Contact Us page and we will be sure to connect with you. Also, if you are interested in being a guest on our show, if you have an inspiring or motivating topic you'd like to tell other people about that can help all of us lead lives of maximum enthusiasm, please be sure to reach out to me as well and we can connect about having you on the show. I hope that this interview sets your day or afternoon or evening up for true maximum enthusiasm. This was such a delight for me. And I feel so grateful and thankful that I get to interview my heroes for this show. And thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. Good morning, guests. I have a huge surprise and treat for you today. I am joined by guest Ashley Piper in Chicago, sustainability expert. Ashley, how are you this morning?
0: I'm fabulous. I'm so happy to see your shining face and chat with you.
1: Oh, I'm so excited to get into this. I'm obsessed with everything you stand for, to be honest. Um, This book just roped me in and cracked me wide open. Ashley is the author of this amazing book called Give a Shit, Do Good, Live Better, Save the Planet. A practical handbook, which I really love. It is super practical. It is not all down in the weeds. It's super hands-on. I assume that was part of the goal.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wanted it to be kind of, obviously it has a younger kind of vibe to the to the speaking, but that's just how I talk. I'm not necessarily even a, a terribly young person anymore. Um, but I wanted it to be something that folks could pick up wherever they are in their sustainability journey, even if that's starting at nothing, um, and find tips that were pretty easily actionable and able to assimilate into their lives.
1: And I want to focus on a couple parts of the book, and then I really want to talk about you and your background and how we got here. Um, So just a few days ago, you wrote this great article for Entrepreneur uh, titled Three Steps to Fix a Home um, Office, just really talking about work from home simplicity. And you talk a lot about clutter and its negative effect on us. And then you also talk about that in your book. You talk about minimalism, paring down to live it up. Um, your book says that, uh, the average American household contains 300,000 items and you talk about Americans wasting 55 minutes a day, just looking for things. Yeah. I have to tell you, I feel so compulsively drawn to simplicity. Yeah. The more time I spend in the van, the more I truly realize you really can only wear one shirt and one pair of pants at a time. I mean, it's just, how did yeah. we, how did we get here? I would love for you to tell me just like get to the point how do we simplify our lives and our home offices it's so much harder than it should be.
0: Yeah, I think we're you know this is a topic that I think has gotten a lot more popular uh, especially during the pandemic. Like minimalism is nothing new um and I do hesitate sometimes to talk about it like I'm an expert because it is like a I mean, our, you know, grandparents and great grandparents, they were minimalists. Indigenous people were minimalists. Like these are the OGs of sustainability, really. But a lot of times we talk about minimalism in a vacuum and and people don't approach it as like a rung of sustainability. And I really think it is because the fewer things that you have, the fewer things that you buy, Uh, that's also fewer things you have to clean. You have to look after you have to, what I call ethically offload, which is finding a responsible way to rehome them when, uh, you no longer want them. Um, and there is like a psychological, uh, kind of mental clutter that comes with things. And we actually have seen this study wise, even more, uh, like more significantly in women, because women kind of have these brains that are naturally geared toward multitasking. And so, the more things you have, the more they're taking up space in your brain. Um, and, and I just think it's, you know, now that we've been kind of either sheltering in place or whatever for the past, sheesh, like, two years, um, people are in these four walls saying, God, I got a lot of shit. You know, I have totally. a lot of stuff that I no longer need. Um, And so we've seen a huge uptick in donation centers receiving a bunch of stuff that they really can't use um, because people want it out of their space. So I think actually like approaching minimalism from the standpoint of being really judicious about um, when you are looking to acquire something, how you acquire it. And also, do you really need it? Like asking yourself those questions because it will save you time in the long run. It'll save you time from cleaning things. It will save you time from, like you mentioned that statistic, looking for things. Um, and I would just also tell your listeners, like that statistic is from the Department of Labor's American Time Study, um, which I find really interesting. They do it every few years. They kind of break it out into different demographics and it shows like how most Americans spend their time you know we spend about an hour cleaning a day i think that is significantly higher for most women than it is for men and the and the, the time study is broken out by traditional gender as well and we spend a lot of time looking for things we spend a lot of time shopping as well about an hour to an hour and a half a day of just shopping and browsing things so big swaths of our life are taken up by stuff. And that's not even addressing kind of the other systemic issues of Americans are kind of more in debt than they ever have been before. About 50% of Americans went into debt over the holiday season this year. Mm. January was one of the biggest spend months um, that we've had in a long time. And that's despite inflation and, you know, potentially an impending recession. So we know people are going into debt to buy more things that potentially they do not need. Um, So I, I look at minimalism as really not a one size fits all. You don't have to be ascetic and only have like one shirt and one spoon and live in a cave and stuff. It needs to be what your definition is for you. What feels right sized for you. Um, and I do think once people kind of get in that mindset of, do I need this? Is there a utility or a function to it? Is it making me money? Is it beautiful? Is it bringing me joy? Uh, when that's your rubric for looking at how you acquire things into your life. And honestly, anything could be people, relationships, whatever totally. experiences, Once you get into that space, you kind of don't want to go back to being like what a lot of Americans are, which is on autopilot. And, you know, uh, that's what marketers know about us. They know that about 94 percent of our purchasing decisions are made. Kind of like with, without thinking, you know, we're either emotionally driven, um, but not utility driven. So buying snow boots would be something that's utility driven if it's blizzarding outside, uh, buying a perfume because you're elated or you're sad or, you know, buying another dress or something like that. Those are more emotionally motivated purchases. And usually we don't really make the decisions when we come from that place.
1: So I love rules and like guardrails and boundaries that are, you know. (laughs) Boundaries are good. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it helps really reduce or uh, alleviate decision fatigue. And in your book, you talk about kind of your list of like your 50 key items, just um, anything from underwear to dress to makeup type Mm -hmm. stuff. You know, for someone like me who really likes a black and white structure to this, is it literally one in, one out? Is it, um, you know, for every two T-shirts I dispose of, I can bring one in, you know, do you have some hard, fast rules that have served you well?
0: I don't have hard, fast rules. I probably would not even be considered by traditional definition, a true minimalist. I have like a gallery wall of like antique paintings that real I really enjoy. You know, I have like things that are kind of, I have an espresso machine. I have things that are kind of considered like uh, not exactly minimal. What I would say is like everybody should design their own rubric. So if you really like hard and fast boundaries, the one-in-one-out rule could really serve you well, especially since you live a good portion of your time in a, in a, a smaller space. Um, for other people, it could just be, I, I really love this. I know I'm going to use this. So I do that. For other people, it's I use something up and then I can replace it, like with makeup or grooming products. So everybody has kind of their own, you know, their own... Uh, approach to it that works for them. And I think as long as we're being like thoughtful about it, because nothing, nothing will transform your relationship with stuff quite like either having to clean out a loved one who maybe has passed on like their home or moving. Like, I mean, those two experiences truly will reacquaint you with how much shit you have uh, or how much stuff actually does like you know, become a burden to you. Yes. So if I think it's just that mindset shift. And even if it's gradual, um, it's helpful to kind of move in that direction. So I can't give you hard and fast guidelines. There are plenty of people who do have those like professional organizers who are very much like, You can't can't buy another thing unless you (laughs) get rid of another thing. But I also feel like, well, if you're getting rid of another thing, the way Americans traditionally get rid of shit is we just like donate it to the Salvation Army or whatever. We know that now 80% of that stuff largely can't be used or resold. So it goes landfill anyway. So if you're still getting utility from something and you see something else, you might get utility or joy from, I don't necessarily subscribe to one has to go. You have to make the Sophie's choice. You can use both that's cool too. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think just being thoughtful about like how stuff, how we interact with stuff in our lives and how it's not just like a a hit of dopamine when we purchase something or acquire something, it's a, it's a relationship with something. And how do you, how long are you planning on having that relationship and how much time do you want to give it? Um, and that for me has been, uh, pretty, pretty chain, like pretty life changing because I was and we'll talk about, I guess like my background later, but I was in a job that was really high stress, and uh, I you know it took it took all of my time and attention, basically. and I found myself shopping and browsing as a way of stress reduction. Ah. And I had a lot of disposable income at the time. so I was doing things like eating like crap and not sleeping well and not treating my body well or my mind well. and I would look to shopping as a way to kind of alleviate some of that. But all it did was have me just under a mountain of shit I never used. Um, And so when I shifted to doing more sustainability work and didn't have that kind of disposable income anymore, I I really reevaluated like how I was going to like how I looked at shopping and acquiring things. And it it changed kind of how I look at
1: almost everything. (sighs) You talk about so much good stuff there. I feel like we may need to schedule a second show. <laughs> I opened because, a real
0: Pandora's box. <laughs> well, it's
1: so good because it goes not just to our environment and climate change. It really does go to our key, like the mental health component of all of this. And as you touched on too, just the marketing algorithms that are designed to outsmart our willpower, it goes so far beyond just trying not to scroll or trying not to get sucked in by gorgeous you know, Instagram ads for yes. things that feel lovely in the moment. Um, yeah. I'm constantly struck by how easy things come into the house, and then how much work it is to to deal with it responsibly. So, do you have some favorite? Um, you know, I see thread up like they can't even turn your items over for twelve weeks. They're so backlogged with yeah. You know, people sending stuff in. As you mentioned, Goodwill. A lot of these donation charities are overwhelmed with stuff. Do you have a favorite one or two avenues yeah. for that?
0: Yeah. So I have like a whole system actually, and I, I call it ethical offloading or rehoming. Um, and really how I look at getting rid of stuff is I kind of hit different rungs of like first ports of call. So my first port of call is usually if I have like a family member or friend who I know will like it or use it, then I will give it to them or send it to them. Like for instance, sometimes I get sent like, makeup and things i'm on pr lists i i generally don't take up on those but sometimes they just send stuff without you even consenting to it uh i'll send that you know i'll ask my girlfriends hey do you need a face oil like are you you need makeup like or if it's something i bought and it doesn't work for me send it to my mom you know like i mean that's cool so then it's kind of fun for them Like a little, you know, but only if they need it and only if they want it. Sure. And then after that, I um, am big into buy nothing groups. I am part of my local buy nothing group in my neighborhood. And if your listeners aren't familiar, they are Facebook groups run by kind of the Buy Nothing project, or at least governed by the bylaws of the Buy Nothing project. And they're local, and basically you can post things that you want to get rid of, and somebody comes in in a contactless way, if that's what you prefer, picks it up from um, your porch or your home or whatever. Every group's a little different, but mine's pretty active. So I get rid of things on Buy Nothing that literally are used makeup, used personal care products, clothes that no longer fit. If I'm going out of town and I'm not going to be able to finish food or if I got an accidental like grocery delivery thing that's meat and I don't eat that, I post it on Buy Nothing. I uh, am always super surprised by super surprised and also a little uh, saddened by like how quickly people will take items that literally most of us have written off as like completely freaking useless right like who like you know a half-eaten box of granola bars or something Well, a lot of people are experiencing food insecurity especially during the pandemic so you would be so surprised the amount of things that you can get rid old bath mats you know like towels just stuff that you would never think so that's my first port of call if i don't have takers there um, and it's something, or it's something that's like a little bit more higher value and I want to sell it. Prince is like a piece of designer clothing or something, right? I'll hit up Poshmark or Mercari, um, and post there to sell the items there or Facebook marketplace. If it's like a nice piece of furniture sure. that I actually would like to get some money back for. Um, then if like the item just is not like a fit for any of those, uh, there are good recycling programs that are not like a consignment model like what ThreadUp does. I think ThreadUp's great. I've used ThredUp, um before. Like you said, they're experiencing like an extreme backlog yeah. to give people this really attractive option to just like shove all their shit in the bag, mail it off for free, and then they'll process it and handle it. Uh, up is not a good money making endeavor for clothes. I tend to find like Poshmark or something where you actually have to put a little more work into listing things is a, yeah. a better way. Um, but that's also for kind of, I think, higher end stuff in better condition. But there are other recycling programs for like textiles, like a company called Four Days, which is an ethical clothing company. They have like a bag where you can send them textiles, uh, like clothing from any manufacturer, and they will responsibly recycle it. And wow. it's very similar to the thread up bag, except they're not doing the consignment kind of middleman thing. So that's really impressive. And then there are other places that are getting more and have been more closed loop, like a Patagonia or an Eileen Fisher, who have lots of different ways for you to either rehome or repurpose your clothing specifically from them. And then there are shoe recycling programs out there that are also decently reputable. Um, so really it's a matter of like finding the right outlet yeah. for your stuff. And that can kind of vary. So if it's usually I find like for furniture... Or electronics, uh, if it's something I want to make money off of, Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist, um, if it's something I'm happy to give for free, uh, buy nothing. And then if it's still there, uh, and, it's, and that rarely happens, then I look into are there charities that need, uh, like I'm a, a member of a certain refugee resettlement organizations here in Chicago, where like a bunch of people kind of adopt a family or, you know, a group of people who have who have come here as asylum seekers from either like Syria or Afghanistan yeah. or whatever, and they have nothing and they need to set up like a home. And so um, sometimes things that are in good condition that people that are on their wish list, like we all kind of rally together and try to bring to them so that they can set up a home. So that's things like dishes and stuff, you know, kitchen utensils, stuff that we really take for granted. And a lot of times, yeah. many of us have multiples of. I mean, if you're starting from scratch and you don't have, you know, uh, knives or <laughs> whatever, this is a great outlet to both do something that's responsible for the environment, but also make sure that the people who get it can really use it. And that's a good outlet for electronics, like TVs and old fire sticks or old Apple TVs or old computers, even. Um, and electrical, electronic waste is like a whole other yeah. fair. But there are companies uh, that actually do a really good job of repurposing those or putting them into programs where they teach people, uh, you know, how to like fix computers and they're oh, sure. used, they'll they use your old computers or, you know, so that I think it requires, as you, as you know, because I just spent like seven minutes talking about my process. But like you said earlier, acquiring things is really easy. Getting rid of them in a way that actually is not like you being a dickhead and not you, but like putting a mattress out in the alley or something yep. Is harder. It requires more time and intention. And so I think going through that process also makes us really mindful about what we bring in because we know eventually we'll have to right. do the same thing with with the stuff we get.
1: Right. Yeah. On the front end at time of purchase or potential acquisition, already giving thought to the lifespan and the eventual disposal has definitely yeah. Slowed my role. Um, real yes, quick, exactly. and I know you said this is a whole nother topic, but mm-hmm. I do have a couple old laptops that I have never found a great place to send to that are not Apple products. So I don't have a trade in option. Do you yes. have a place that you love that's available not just in Chicago, but nationwide for electronics? So
0: these, yeah, those re- like electronics recycling for larger electronics is a really local kind of thing. I would definitely see if you have where you are, um, or maybe back in Colorado, if they're like, there's something called free geek here, okay. where they literally will take your laptops, and they give them to people who've been experiencing unemployment or homelessness, wow. and they teach them how to take apart like computers, how to put them back together. And then they refurbish computers and resell them to continually fund the oh, program. that's so cool. I would imagine there are probably similar programs where you are. I also have a friend who runs a sheltered workshop in India where she employs and really supports like uh, like dozens of women who make ethical clothing there in the sheltered workshop. And those gals need computers that just can hook to the internet. Uh, wow. They don't have to be like the newest or whatever. Yeah. So sometimes like someone will get them, refurbish them a little bit. So there are, are a few different options. I know some schools will take older but still functioning laptops and computers especially for kids who are doing virtual learning
1: during the pandemic
0: or who may not have access to a computer at home so there are are tons of organizations that if you do a little digging it's more local we'll do that now if you have like cords or small chargers or things like that for like an old phone that you donated you don't know what this cord goes to nimble is a great company that has like an electronic waste kind of uh And I cited them, I think in that entrepreneur article that I was interviewing, but they have, uh, they make eco-friendly kind of chargers uh, and battery packs for like your smaller items. But they also have like a recycling program where by the bag you can put cords and, you know, old chargers and things like that in there, mail it in and they will responsibly recycle them because they'll also use some of those materials to make their, uh, their chargers that they sell.
1: Oh my gosh. I love that so much. Talk about closing the loop on some of these things. Yeah.
0: Oh, they're a great company. Yeah. But it's, it is a more, I wish I had like a more kind of like, uh, you know, answer for where you are, but some recycling stuff is just so, it's just so subjective to the location.
1: I thought that list was really great and comprehensive. So thank you for that. And (laughs) sure, I mean, So yes, you're a sustainability expert. You talk about these things all the time till you're blue in the face, probably. Mm -hmm. Is there a question or topic that's been top of mind for you that you wish people would ask you about? Something that you're not getting to talk about as much as you would like? Because people like me probably gravitate to the obvious. That's a
0: really good question. I mean, I think the topics that are really compelling now, as I've been doing this for almost a decade and kind of seen how things evolve. Because when I started doing this, I would hear a lot from producers and editors. Nobody wants, nobody cares about sustainability. That's not like a hot topic. Like nobody <laughs> wants to, you know, and it wasn't like they were being assholes. They were just like knowing their audience. And now it's become such, oh yeah, you know, a hot topic and hopefully not in a trendy way. Hopefully something that's here to stay, especially as we see more of the manifestations of, of climate change right. um, in our daily lives, right? So I think like one of the most interesting topics, and this perhaps is like, We've seen a rise in like sustainable influencer culture, which I don't consider myself an influencer, but we've seen like the eco talkers and, you know, like the, and I think it's all great because like awareness is one of the biggest awareness and mobilization. Those are super important. Um, But what's interesting is influencer culture really does hinge on an exchange largely of kind of paid exposure or goods to then, you know, like to promote those and influencers have to make a living, which I yes. completely understand. Um, and so, and not everybody's like me where I have a different day job, you know, that allows me to do this. Cause like, there's not a lot of money in doing like sustainability work unless you're working for an organization. So I think it's really fascinating because those of us who really understand sustainability know that one of the best things we can do is to stop buying shit like stop unnecessarily buying shit and that we know that in individuals, we can't buy our way, you know, out of the climate crisis. And yet we have this great affirmation that sustainability minded consumers are in fact, um, no longer a fringy consumer group. We are a majority of consumers who want something that is a more sustainably produced product or that's going to enable us to live more sustainable lives. Um, but at the same time, you got to—they're new products. You got to buy them, that's right? So they're true. being produced, and um, it's great to see those in the marketplace. But I also like to tell people, like you know, the most sustainable option is the thing you already have. You don't need to go out and buy bamboo cutlery if you've got cutlery at home. You can bring with you, or you know, you don't need the latest like fancy schmancy water bottle. I mean, I love all that shit. I like, you know, I get it. You know, you want a feeling of newness. You want to like it refreshes you. And if that's what helps you get started or stay the course on your journey. Do it, you know, that's awesome. But I do find now sustainability has become a player in like this very capitalist kind of machine. And uh, I'm no Pollyanna, you know, I mean, we all work for a living and we understand that we're participatory in that. But it is super interesting because the heart of sustainability is using what you have. Right. And I think I feel sometimes bad for influencers because they're put in this place where. They need to make a living. They obviously care about what they're doing and they care deeply about the planet and educating people, but they're in this kind of like catch 22 where they have to get paid. Um, And in order to do that, sometimes they have to shell products that largely aren't desperately contributive to uh, solving like the climate crisis. They're kind of contra to it. Um, So no shade on these great companies either, who I'm sure many are well-intentioned and doing good things. But when I see people like, my partnership with Clorox or my partnership with, you know, Johnny yeah. Walker or something. I'm kind of like, I don't understand it. Uh, I yeah. know that companies are becoming more sustainable, but all of that is just kind of like, a, you know, leading to more of a culture of greenwashing as well. So I, th- I think influencers are in a really precarious position. That's hard to maintain. Um, and I I think it's interesting how sustainability to live sustainably, people think you have to go out and buy a bunch of sustainable shit. And that is not true. Like people say like, well, I can't be sustainable unless I don't have fast fashion in my closet anymore. And I'm like, wherever you heard that, that's not fucking true. Like, I don't know where you heard that, but like, it's use what you have. Or rehome it, uh, but there's no need to like donate everything to the Salvation Army or something and then buy a whole closet or a capsule wardrobe of new sustainable stuff. What you have is the most sustainable option. You've got a bunch of, you know, beauty products that were tested on animals or that aren't vegan or like whatever your new lens is that you're trying to buy from. Use that shit up, like use it up for God's sakes, because it's not doing anybody any good languishing in a landfill Uh, and you know, it doesn't make you some kind of sterling environmentalist by getting rid of it. So, and I think some of that, uh, gosh, I could just talk all day about this, but I think some of that stems from the sustainability movement has largely been, uh, dominated by people who look like me and you, you know, it's been a lot of like white women who have these, and I don't necessarily think I have like an aspirational life. I'm like a fuck up a lot of times when it comes to sustainability, but I don't have like a mason jar full of my trash from the past six years. Um, And the people who do, I know them. They're really amazing. People who are doing cool stuff. Uh, Like sometimes I think that sends a message to people. Like if you can't be perfect, don't fucking bother. I agree with that. And I don't want that to like, you know, discourage people from coming to table, because this is really an all hands on deck kind of situation, right? So I'll take it. I'll take my, you know, conservative, like everyday meeting, eating father telling me he had sort of a vegetarian day, you know, I don't need him to go whole hog and be vegan. I don't need him to eliminate all the plastic from his home. I, you know, want him to be I want to celebrate him for the small steps that he is making. So I just figured into like a whole bunch of things. But I do think sustainability as a consumer kind of uh, as, a, as a consumer benchmark is a really interesting development and influencer yeah. culture kind of propping that up is is also really interesting to see.
1: I'm so glad you touched on that topic because I have felt myself having that draw. Again, Instagram is kind of where I am primarily marketed mm-hmm. to. I don't watch television. I'm not susceptible to commercials. I have satellite I'll radio. I don't hear radios. Well, I just don't like commercials. Yeah, um, they
0: suck, right? <laughs> but
1: Instagram, Instagram is where it gets me. And so I do get sucked in by the bamboo this and the eco that and the sustainable, renewable, responsible. Um, the, like, yeah. Those tags to me have very big marketing influence and swagger for me. And yes. I have found myself saying, but I don't need this just yet. Let me wear out my kitchen spoon before I buy a new bamboo one. And it's hard. It's like, again, it contributes to that decision fatigue in a way of trying to do the right thing. But again, feeling sure. compelled to buy something.
0: Well, and you see people with these like beautiful eco-friendly homes that are super minimal and they've got, you know, eco-friendly design is gorgeous. Yeah. It's totally gotten- Shit, so much better than it was 10 years ago when I first started doing this stuff. Like eco-friendly stuff was kind of crunchy looking. Um, sustainable clothing was really mm, like not fit for people who had, you know, for instance, like jobs where they had to get dressed up. That's you right. Know? Like it just, there weren't a lot of options. Now we have like a plethora of options, which is such a blessing and it's such a great thing. But we, I think, get stymied by... Like, if our lives don't look like those things, which they never do, like, it's never enough, right? If our lives don't look like those things, then we're not doing a good enough job as environmentalists. And that's just, you know, that's something I kind of like to see this imperfect environmentalist trend where people are like, yeah, okay, I, you know, don't eat meat, but I went to Dunkin' Donuts and I got like iced coffee in a plastic cup. Like, I, do these things too on occasion you know i like to see that because i think it humanizes uh like an entry point for the movement for people who otherwise have felt pretty
1: excluded Totally. Well, and on that note, so much of these climate change and sustainability conversations do come back to this sort of um, don't get stuck in the analysis paralysis mindset of, yeah, girl, look at that water jug. I'm so proud of you. It's so so
0: egregious. You know, it's just like I'm like drinking from a toddler. Is that like
1: 180 (laughs) ounces? What is that sucker? It's a
0: gallon. Gosh, it's a gallon. But this is a buy nothing score. Actually, somebody was getting rid of this and I thought, well. Wow. This is good. I don't care about the inspirational. For your listeners, it's like I have this obscenely large water bottle thing. It's that I got on my buy nothing group, and honestly, it's been super. I just fill it up every day and try to drink the whole thing. It's, so a gallon you know, of water, more or less. I'm not doing like 75 hard or anything wow. like that. You know, it's just, uh, it's just, uh, yeah. Well, we don't always make it. That's amazing. You know, but it's nice to have water like good there
1: reminds me to do it. Anyway, right sorry, I
0: cut you off. Anyway. No, that was great. I'm so
1: thankful you shared that. Thank you. Um, the whole analysis paralysis, if I can't do this perfect, I sh- why bother? I don't want to be vegan, so I might as well just keep doing what I'm doing. I'm unwilling yeah. to stop flying places. I'm unwilling to put solar on my house. You know, some of these really big mm-hmm. things that we talk about. What are a few of your favorite, and we also know that, of course, the big corporations are the ones that carry sort of the lion's share of the contribution, but yet there's also this huge element of personal responsibility and things that we all can do. And obviously, I'm a fan of riding bikes and not driving cars everywhere. That's kind of my thing. Um, Low meat products is my thing. You know, what are some of the low-hanging fruits? You talk a lot about this in your book, by the way, but if you had to just give two or three to the people who haven't yet really started to stick their foot into this pool? What what are two or three of the easiest things to do right now?
0: Yeah, I don't know if that's the easiest, and you kind of already mentioned it, but when people say, I want to do one thing that's like, what's the most impactful thing I could do? I, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but we have really good longitudinal data that supports that. What you eat has a huge impact on the planet. And so I'm not saying you gotta be vegan because there are implications with that as well. There is no like perfect way of eating or living, but um, reducing meat consumption and animal product consumption yeah. is the most single most powerful individual act that we can do. It is more powerful than driving an electric vehicle, than biking or carpooling uh, or taking public transit. It is more powerful than uh, in a way like going trying to go plastic free. Because when you look at the data around not just um, raising animals, especially large land animals, um, but also all of the transport that is associated with them. So you see like the stats are like, oh, animal agriculture, traditional animal agriculture contributes to 14 to 51 percent. The swing in that to the larger amount is when we get to the 51 percent when we start looking at, okay, we've got to fuel these trucks to take these cattle to the slaughterhouse. Okay, we have to like fly this grain from this place to another place. So the transportation and the attendant emissions associated with animal agriculture are what really bump it up to being one one of, if not the most culpable, uh, climate change harmful emissions causes. So that's something. The good news is that's something you have personal power to totally. make a dent in. And we know that. I'm a big believer in, in individual actions. I'm not saying. I'm not a big believer in individual actions because I think individuals are solely responsible for the climate crisis or for fixing the climate crisis. But we hear that stat all the time about, you know, 20 companies or whatever are responsible for one third of harmful global emissions. And I appreciate that it that stat exists. I think it's important. But I also dislike the apathy that it breeds because at the end of the day, these are fossil fuel and some agricultural companies. They exist because we have created a demand for what they are producing. That doesn't mean they don't overproduce, um, even regardless of demand. But it does mean that if you've got heat in your home, you've got power, you are intentionally or unintentionally a consumer consumer of these companies. So I think sometimes we like to dissociate ourselves from it and be like, well, it's not me, you know, it's really, we are, we are those companies in a way. Um, and so changing how you eat, not just from animal products, but also eating more locally and more seasonally. Um, there's been more data that's come out around that. That's really compelling. Whether that's getting a CSA, going to the farmer's market, you know, not ordering pineapples in the winter when you live in Chicago, which is very hard for me because it is my favorite fruit. Um, you know, when you look at that, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty simple personal choice and something you absolutely have power over. And it is the most impactful thing that we can do for the planet. And we see that those individual actions actually do matter because we see companies like Tyson and Purdue who traditionally deal in animal agriculture now starting to buy shares in or buy companies that make vegetarian and vegan products. So again, that like people who eat in that way, no matter how they label themselves uh, are a compelling consumer group. So individual choices do matter because we've seen such an uptick. I mean, look at, you go to any grocery store anywhere pretty much you can find like eight different kinds of alternative milks, you know, I mean, this is, this is truly show. These were, you know, individual actions that then rolled up to be more collective movements. So yes, what you eat, I think is the number one biggest change that you can make. And then I am, this is why I'm not terribly popular with like uh, pimping a lot of companies, but I think the other big thing that you can do is to buy less shit and to just just like work on both the emotional and kind of the logistical impulses we have to buy new things if you do a financial fast if you do kind of a no spend challenge those are really interesting and healthy ways to understand your impulses to buy new stuff because without us buying new stuff individually Fewer things are becoming produced as a collective, if that's something we all do. So Mm -hmm. um, I think that's really important too. And these are things that we can do without spending a lot of money. Um, These are things we can do without buying a bunch of new things. Like this is, you know, it's kind of like when people say, Well, I want to get fit. Uh, Do I need to join a gym? And do I need to buy all new Lululemon stuff? And I need a water bottle? I need like skinny tea and all this shit it's like or you could just take a walk like i mean let's start there <laughs> exactly. that's i think we we overcomplicate sustainability we do. as a way of procrastination because we know the things that actually can be helpful it's just like the same way we overcomplicate nutrition or yeah. good health or whatever it is right um and we're all susceptible to it and and i think actually the most powerful things that we can do to be more sustainable or live more sustainably are things that are pretty accessible to most people and 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 pretty low cost, if not free.
1: Yeah, it's crazy how this privilege, this life of so many choices and options that we lead, comes with so mm-hmm. much unnecessary complexity and just resisting the machine that is designed to overcome our willpower to buy things. Um, there's oh, a yeah. whole psychological component there that's so fascinating to me, like literally digging into your relationship with stuff, and
0: oh. For sure. And we see, you know, I actually, I I think like, I don't want to talk about like diet culture and shit like that, but we see a lot of parallels Mm -hmm. in, for instance, like we live in, the Western world is a world of relative abundance, right? In fact, like egregious abundance. Yes. The problems that we are experiencing are problems of abundance of choice. Um, And so we actually see that in data around like, eating disorders around the world. So like, if you live in the West, if you live in Western countries where you have a significant amount of food, you also have a significant amount of people who have unhealthy relationships or struggles with food, be that binge eating or morbid obesity, or the opposite end of the spectrum, like anorexia and bulimia and kind of like uh, controlled, like really controlled eating routines. Uh, You don't see that as much in countries where people like where food is more scant, right? And so here in the U.S., we also have an abundance of resources, an abundance of things that we can buy. And because of that, we are also the biggest, uh, well, not the biggest, but we are one of the most disproportionate contributors to climate change because we have so many options. And so sometimes, like you said earlier, stripping away some of those options is, is not only good for you know, how you move about the planet, but it's just really good for your mental health and your emotional well-being and a lot of times your physical health. Like Trader Joe's actually is successful because they have a model uh, that they embrace where they, and stop me if you've heard this, but it's pretty interesting. They did a lot of consumer kind of testing and saw that people would go into like a traditional grocery store replete with options. They'd look at the aisles and see 50 different kinds of peanut butter and they'd be like stymied By the choice and so they thought what if we only have like three kinds of peanut butter but they're all really fucking good right and so we're eliminating the amount of choices you have to do every day because they know psychologically our brains can only handle so many choices a day that's why you hear people say like you know these people who kind of like maximize their time or life hackers they'll be like as many choices as you can eliminate first thing in the morning that you have to make the better your day is going to be your workout clothes you're laid out You got your smoothie already made. Like you don't check your email until you're like, you've worked out. Like you have, because they know the second we start considering all these other options, we're not going to stay the course and we're going to get like super distracted. And then in some ways, like just be completely inactive because we're like, I don't know. There are like 50 different things I could do right now. And I guess I'll just do none of them. That's right. And uh, so we are a country that is completely stymied by choice and I think sometimes clearing a lot of that choice away, uh, when it comes to buying things and doing things is one of the best things we can do to kind of
1: recalibrate. So much goodness there. Yeah. Yeah, I just drew like 87
0: studies out there. Oh no, no. no, That's interconnected and interesting, you know, it is
1: is. not just for our planet, but for our own mental health. It's like the more Mm -hmm. options and choice and privilege we have, the more the mental health is breaking down, um, which is not lost on me. And um, yeah, you mentioned earlier on the plant milk. I just wanted to throw this at you. Um, a woman I raced bikes with, Dotsie, ba- Dotsie Bausch over at Switch for Good, they were just successful in getting the Starbucks over in UK to stop wow. with the plant milk upcharges. They're like, why are you that's willing amazing. to give us milk for free, but you're going to charge us 70 cents for almond milk, which I think, you know, to your point about the shift happening, that's a really yeah. powerful one. Like, why are you punishing people who want to be dairy free?
0: So by their- awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing.
1: Um, Okay, so now I really want to talk about you because your book is awesome. I wanted to talk about the (laughs) single-use plastic, and if we get there, I definitely want to touch on that because that's been really on the forefront with COVID and just how much more single-use stuff, but... I really want to talk about Ashley Piper and how <laughs> how you I mean I just love on your LinkedIn it's like it leads with sustainability expert and thank you. You know, I work with so many successful women in law and I feel like this imposter syndrome is so real. Everyone's like, "Well, what gives me credibility to talk about X or this or I just I see so many leaders in these women that I'm surrounded by who they're like, well, yeah, I know a lot about this. And yes, it's my specialty, but I'm still kind of afraid to like hold myself out there. And I imagine Mm -hmm. that that probably was part of your internal narrative for a while too. And now you're just like, no, I'm a sustainability expert. This is me. This is what I do. How did this all (laughs) come to be? How is this where you are today?
0: That's a uh, great question. Thank you for asking it. And, a, and a kind of a long answer, but I will try to be,
1: you don't have brief. to be short. That's it. A-
0: so I went to grad school because I thought I w- was going to be a social worker. Um, I was really interested in being like direct service kind of clinician. And I did a lot of, I went to grad school overseas and so did a lot of placements there uh, working with like Unaccompanied refugee youth, and uh, you know stuff like that. But my program was social work uh, blended with statistics, so really empowering direct service workers to understand, to collect data on, and to synthesize that data on whether or not these social interventions were actually working. Um, so, like evidence based, basically, wow. which uh, we see now as a, a big trend in education and law enforcement, like empowering direct the people who are actually doing the work to really understand if what the work they're doing is actually effective. Sure. And uh, through that, I saw a lot of obviously sociological intersections um, for many things. And I went to grad school, shown almost, it was almost 20 years ago. I mean, at this point, it was like 2004, but uh, came back to the US and thought I was going to be a social worker. And someone actually took me to a hearing at the state house for a nonprofit organization. And this was in Massachusetts. And I thought, wow, like I kind of am interested in this whole political thing. Like my family's not connected. They're not particularly political. I'm not even from Massachusetts. And I thought this could be kind of cool. So I asked someone who was attending the hearing, Hey, how'd you get your job? They were like an aide or something. And they said, "Oh, my my mom knows the state uh, rep, you know." And I thought, "Well, fuck, I, how do I get in here?" <laughs> and uh, I asked, "Well, do you have any advice?" And she was like, "Well, whatever you do, don't bring your resume door to door. They hate that." And I remember being like 22. And I went to Kinko's, I made like 150 copies of my resume, and I just like brought them to every single door at the state house in Boston. <laughs> and it was just like a moment of young pluck. And through that, I ended up getting a job working for the then governor, who was Mitt Romney. I'm not affiliated with Mitt Romney politically. Um, but I did work at on his cabinet as, uh, as a advisor for shoot, uh, two years, two and a half years, and then continued to work for Deval Patrick, oh, who was cool. his successor and worked on things like universal health care, which in Massachusetts, that was really the backbone for what, uh, Obamacare eventually became yeah. because it was the first kind of state that maneuvered a private payer system to a more public health system. Um, worked on all sorts of stuff around child welfare, but you know, there wasn't a lot of focus on environment because it was like the, or still the early aughts. So, you yeah. know, it wasn't as much a thing. Um, and then I moved to Chicago and actually started uh, working at a consulting firm, kind of more outside in doing political strategy. And a lion's share of my work was creating campaigns and compelling messaging for a variety of candidates and also some government agencies on all different levels. And it was really interesting and and good work. Um, But at the same time, it was like super all-encompassing, you know, like calls at two in the morning, uh, no work-life balance at all. And and also, um, I couldn't really choose my clients. They were assigned to me. So I was doing a lot of work for and with people whom I did not think were very good people. And the work I was doing was making them more publicly palatable, like more popular, more resonant, you know, with um, their their proposed constituencies. So that kind of took, a. I think I had like a little like early onset, maybe midlife crisis or quarter life crisis where I thought I'm making a lot of money, but I'm doing something that I don't feel really good about doing. I'm helping right. people who like don't believe that gay people are people. That's not something I align with. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not something I align with. Now, those weren't all my clients. I had some fabulous clients who I also really uh, aligned with. And it was a joy and an honor to work with and for them. But uh, yeah, I struggled with that a lot. And I think um, at that time also, I had adopted my dog, which was like uh, the most wonderful idea, as you know, but also uh, hard because I was traveling a lot. And I became vegan as well. And so those were kind of like two things that were personal journeys for me that I just became so passionate about. And veganism was like my gateway drug into environmentalism. And I just started to see the intersections of that in everything. And I just, you know, I I felt for a few months really strongly, I could be doing this kind of messaging and campaigning work for sustainability causes um, that actually need it more than these jokers who are like my clients Mm -hmm. that I'm working Mm -hmm. for. So I actually left that job without much of a plan. I mean, I paid off any debt I had and knew I was like not going to have like money, really. Uh, But I was going to give myself some time to figure out what I wanted to do. And that was really great. And I'm so thankful I did it. But it was also very challenging because, as you know, you're kind of going through a season as well, where you are transitioning from something So much of how we present ourselves in the world is this very discreet elevator pitch of what we do for a living. And I was more financially prepared to leave my 10-year career than I was emotionally prepared to then, like, how do I present myself in the world? And how do I feel like a legit human being without this job descriptor?
1: Yes. Um,
0: And that was hard, right? Right. And there weren't people who were doing like a lot of sustainability stuff. I mean, there were people who were doing it, but there, I didn't see people doing it on TV and I didn't see people doing it in in, like mainstream publications. I saw it more kind of these niche eco publications that are great, but they were kind of preaching to the choir. And so that's, I didn't really have like a path. I still don't really have a path that I like am following or someone whose path I'm kind of like trying to replicate. I just sort of would be like, hey, I wonder if I could write for this. Maybe I'll give that a try. Or, hey, I wonder if I could bring this on TV. Maybe I'll give that a whirl. And I think I was just in a place where I didn't have contacts to do that stuff. And I didn't have experience doing that stuff. But I was so poor at the time, <laughs> like like with no income coming in. You could imagine. So my lifestyle also completely became different. And that's sure. why I didn't buy stuff. That's why I was buying food in bulk. That's like all of these sustainable behaviors were reinforced because I just did not have yeah. any really disposable income. Um, and I also was in this place where it felt like nothing was working. So I was really unafraid to try things. Oh, I and love it. At things. And um, I think that's where I got, sometimes I think about it and I'm like, how do I get the stamina to like, find TV producers, pitch them without knowing how to do a pitch weather them rejecting me and sometimes in really nasty ways and then keep doing it like yeah. all the time. Like, how did I do that? Um, and I think it was just because I was in a space where I was like, I don't know what I'm fucking doing, but like, we're just going to give it a whirl, whatever, throw it against the wall. If it doesn't stick. It. Okay. We'll try something else. So I have been really just doing that for <laughs> like a decade almost and um, delighting in the journey, like trying to kind of be, uh, I've done, 300 TV segments. That's now amazing, almost, Ashley. Think, uh, on sustainability, and so the Gosh. sustainability expert piece kind of evolved. And I know that there are probably people who are like, "Oh, she thinks she's an expert," and I'm sort of like, "Well, yeah. I mean, I have been doing this for like a you decade, are. so I feel I have like some of the cachet there." Uh, my book obviously was like heavily fact-checked by a major publisher, so. Uh, I feel like I have a good hold on the research, both from an educational standpoint of I, you know, have a master's in Oxford from from Oxford in statistics. Like I understand how to read the climate data and synthesize it. Um, And my most like, uh, it's more, maybe I'm more of a sustainable living expert, but if you're pitching TV shows and magazines, they don't want to, you know, they want to know that you are an authority in something. And I was one of the first people to do that. So I do feel that I've, I don't demur about the title. I see it more as kind of a, um, it's like a means to an end. It helps me to get in a place of visibility where I can continue to communicate these things to people who may not otherwise hear it. And it's, you know, so I don't, I don't feel bad about it. And like you said earlier, women, and I think also people who are just generally marginalized have been taught to demure about their, uh, their accomplishments, yeah. their capacities, their talents. And after working in politics, you know, which is such a fucking boys club anyway, I just was like, nah, I'm not going to do that. Cause like, you know, we're all out here. If you're not going to bet on yourself, then nobody's going to. Totally. And you also have to have like a fucking, will of steel to, uh, do anything on TV because everybody and their dog has like comments about how you look, know you said, everything. And I just, I mean, even my boyfriend is like, are you serious? Like he's so surprised by, uh, either like the sexual like advances I'll get from doing like a local TV show or the like super nasty, like crazy comments that people make. And, um, yeah, I think like, so I kind of try to own my shit whenever I can, uh, because I think it's important because like not trying to say like the world is hard, but if you've got a passion and you're trying to do something, uh, you and you've done things already, by golly, you should let people know like Amen. you're out here to you're out here to be a beacon to do something same as you, you know, like whatever you do next is going to be like dope as hell. You should fucking own it. <laughs> you caught me on a good day though some days I'm like oh god you know like I'm a fraud but I actually don't feel a lot of um imposter syndrome I don't know if I'm just built differently maybe I'm like like uh low self-esteem high ego or something (laughs) but I never I don't really ever walk into a place and feel like I don't belong there I love that and maybe that's just I don't know Like, I don't know where I, where I got that, but I don't really ever feel like I shouldn't be in the room discussing something.
1: Bravo. I'm so glad. I'm so thankful. (laughs) The world needs to hear more of you. So I'm so glad. Well, thank you.
0: You too. I mean, you also, you know, we also get told so often things are off limits to us or we can't do certain things. And so much of this journey for me has been like people telling me things aren't possible. And me being like, okay, well, I'm going to try to ferret it out. I'm going to try to figure it out and see what's possible. And it's not like a, I'll show them. It's more sort of like, is it really impossible? Or is it just that those people couldn't do it? Or those people don't know me well enough to, and they think I can't do it. So, I, you know, I, I always feel like that's another reason why women especially should really own their own their accomplishments and feel Strong in them because and not feel bad about communicating them because like literally every mediocre white dude is is like boasting about like some little baby bullshit accomplishment that he has done. I love men, don't get me wrong, but like we all know, you know, and and I just I you know I'm kind of like they're not sitting here, you know, feeling like they're inadequate. uh, That's right. Or they're not, you know, they can't do something. People aren't telling them that something is off limits or impossible for them. So I'm not going to feed into that for myself or for any other, you know, woman or marginalized person. I think that, you know, we got to kind of keep, keep gassing each other up, you know?
1: That's right. Well, not only that, but the cause that you're advocating for couldn't be more important because all of our lives and our, um, our path forward in survival depends upon it. Depends
0: on, yeah, for sure. So and that keeps me fueled on days when I feel like, you know, I'm not doing a good job, or I'm not getting where I want to go fast enough, or whatever. I try to kind of focus on that. And I think everybody does that. I'm sure you do that as well. You know, you just kind of kind of put one foot in front of the other and figure out, uh, stay hopeful, stay optimistic, which right. is especially difficult these past two years. But you know, totally, we keep, we keep, we keep on keeping on.
1: I mean, if nothing else, the virus has raised uh, visibility to the ramifications of climate change um, and and us having bred an environment in which something like this can survive. Yes. Um, yeah, still so much more there that I want to ask about, but oh, that That's was fine. all so We've good. Got, I,
0: can, I can hang for a little bit longer. And, and the online on.
1: vitriol that you mentioned, I mean, wow, uh-huh. like the comments <laughs> and... The way that that has become socially acceptable and expected. I mean, we have a saying in bike advocacy, which is you just never read the comments because any article whatsoever about cycling always has comments by people who say cyclists deserve to die and we're more um, annoying than cockroaches. Imagine saying
0: that. Imagine thinking that. That just makes me sad for that person that they're even in that space where they believe that. That's crazy to me.
1: And what's terrifying is, unfortunately, some of them do follow through with those threats. And, you know, then the question is, well, wh- why wasn't that essentially premeditated murder when they said they were going to go do something like that? And then they did it. But yeah. unfortunately, people don't value human lives on bicycles the way they value human lives in cars. And so anyway, my where I'm going with this is yeah. when I set out in this space, I really wanted to make cycling safer for everyone in America. And I kind of started and to make- take it all too personally when the trend, actually, these last couple of years, you know, COVID times were great for cycling. We saw a boon of people taking to bikes, stop driving their cars everywhere. It's been like yeah. the, great, the great bike shortage, as we've called it. I mean, just 10x numbers of people riding bikes. But in the last year or so, we've seen the driving behavior of people just in conjunction with the overall anxiety and unhappiness that COVID has, has brought about and highlighted. People are way more reckless and aggressive now while they're driving. I took that all really personally. If I could go back and tell myself back when I started this journey in 2010, which sounds around the time you started your sustainability journey, I would have asked myself, Megan, by what metrics would you judge your success? What are your ways of saying that this work that you're doing is successful? Because I had this big pie in the sky notion, and then I fell constantly like I was falling short. So my question to you in this giant, Topic of sustainability and climate health is is how do you define your personal success and sort of what are the metrics that give you hope and what you know where do you see this going? Oh,
0: that's a to- First of all, I totally. I mean, your journey is so incredible to me too. So we're gonna have to like grab a <laughs> beer sometime when you're near Chicago and talk about it because I think Deal. the work you're doing is so important. Um, and I'm excited to see what you do next. Uh, I don't have a good answer for that because I am like profoundly hard on myself mm-hmm. and my, like anybody who's ambitious, I never feel like I've achieved a level of success. And that's something I'm working on. <laughs> that's something I'm working on as have been instructed by my family and friends and myself as well is to um, more, like focus on and celebrate and indulge in some of the like the wins or the accomplishments. I'm not good at doing, I'm good at doing that for other people. I'm really Uh shite at doing it for myself. So for me, you know, like, like I want to do more TV around sustainability for me being a sustainability correspondent for a major network (sighs) or having my own show. That's the apex right now of like my success journey. Obviously, I still want to have those lofty goals, but I need to like bring it back down to like where I am and appreciate where I'm at if I want to feel that true kind of feeling of success. I think the biggest thing is I'm trying to enjoy the journey. It's a it's a trope, but I am really trying to look back at my life and think, well, ten years ago, I didn't know that this is where I would be, and so I really want to make sure that I'm approaching my life with kind of a feeling of awe and like excitement around how far I've come and, and what might come next. And, um, and positive anticipation around that. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, there are definitely days I don't feel successful. Um, but I also know like we're all living in kind of this weird snow globe where we've been fed an idea of success that a lot of people don't, um, you know, necessarily embrace or subscribe to anymore. Like, I mean, you're a gal as well. I am unmarried. Like I have a partner who I love dearly, but I am 40. I do not have children and I am not married by a lot of people's rubric of success and the American dream. I am a huge fucking failure. um, Because I have not actualized those things. Uh, I don't think that, that, but I think there are people who would think that. Mm -hmm. And so I don't, you know, defining what success means for myself is probably what I'm trying to work on and make that like an attainable definition of success where I can actually live in that space and feel good in that space without constantly thinking about what's next. Um, so that's a really long and convoluted way of saying, I don't, I don't know. I haven't figured that out yet.
1: I love that you're at where you're at in that. And I also, um, sort of feel myself getting protective of you because I (laughs) want you to not sort of burn out in this really important work that you're doing. And, you know, I've recently interviewed some folks in the bike advocacy space too. And I sort of ask, how do you keep yourselves recharged and fed when we do hear so much of that negativity? And we do have such a, long way to go. And some of these things are sort of almost unsolvable issues, if you will, or we may not see them remedied in our lifetime, or at least Mm -hmm. the way that we would like to see them remedied and, and still to have that perseverance and that tenacity to keep going. So I hope if nothing else from me today, you will hear how grateful I am for the work that you're doing and how much I hope you will keep doing it. And I would love to see you in your own show. That would be amazing or (laughs) a correspondent on this issue. That would be fantastic Oh, thank
0: you. You are such a light. Well, I I feel the same way about you. I think, you know, that's really lovely. And we do, you know, we got to, we got to do like self care and other care and all that stuff. And and that's, you know, tough. I think right now, what I'm also trying to focus on is like seasons that feel like nothing's happening are the seasons when I enjoy myself and I get myself ready for when things do happen. There you go kind of being okay with and embracing like the less busy, um, yes. maybe not less busy, but it feels like less stuff is like, you know, less breakthroughs are happening or whatever. I'm reminding myself like it's under the surface that's percolating. I just yeah. can't necessarily see it. But what I can do is stay optimistic and, you know, positively anticipatory and like ready for what comes. And I think climate change is, you know, we, we know that climate anxiety is extremely spiked over the past 20. few years. It's like seventy percent of us experience it. I think that's really conservative, and we actually have seen like therapists are now reporting people are partaking in therapy, and their primary reason for it is climate anxiety, which we haven't seen before, um, really. And it's real. That's really like become kind of a phenomenon during COVID, um, and so it's a depressing issue. But what and I mentioned this in my TED talk. But what we know just about anxiety in general is that it makes us feel paralyzed it you know it makes us not want to take action and on the other side of the coin we know that taking small actions like super small uh actually help us to build our confidence they help us to build our hope it's an electric feeling that makes us want to build off of that momentum of moving forward so taking small actions for the planet i.e. living more sustainably that's the only thing we can really control i think it's one of the best ways to assuage climate anxiety now some people might say we're like the band playing on the titanic and that's foolish but i'd rather be playing the fucking violin than laying down and waiting just for shit it happen yeah right i'd rather be feeling like i'm doing something because to me feeling powerful is more important um just for my own well-being like feeling somewhat effectual Yep. Uh, Makes me a happier person than, you know, sitting and feeling so bedraggled by this that I choose to do nothing. Right. And I just choose to wait. Um, So I think it's, you know, I talk about sustainability being self-care and I really believe that. I think it's care for others and I think it's care for ourselves. And I think it's one of the ways we'll emotionally move through what is the most challenging issue of our time. so even if you're doing something that feels like a fool's errand a little bit, or people tell you it is, uh, that just the act of doing that thing kind of trains your brain to say like, oh well, I'm you know I'm doing something, so that's better than nothing. Let's keep doing more somethings.
1: Oof, powerful. I've never thought of that that way. Sustainability (laughs) as self care. But no, you're so right. Yeah. It is like an antidote to anxiety, it's just simply taking action. Um, Mm -hmm. And you mentioned in there your TED Talk, which is a recent endeavor for you. And I imagine that was just so exciting. And just, (laughs) I mean, what an incredible experience. I'm so proud of you.
0: Oh, thank you. It was wild. Totally a wild experience. That's another kind of example of something that I just, Last year, I was like, I'd like to do a TED talk and just sort of like found my way to doing one. And, uh, yeah, it, it was an, it was an awesome experience and I'm very grateful to have, have it just out there because it's, it's, um, it's, yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's a cool opportunity. So it was really fun. It really stretched me too, as far as like my own anxiety around, I don't have a lot of anxiety around public speaking. Uh. Or being public facing at all, but something about going into, and maybe it was like after almost two years of pandemic and kind sure. of us being like pretty isolated, uh, going into an auditorium with like hundreds of people and speaking like a memorized thing that's big, uh, that I knew would be on the internet for like a long time. That I definitely took some shots of vodka before I rolled up to the to the the performance stage because i was like you know uh, i need to do this <laughs> i was like i can't not do it but i need to like you know i need to kind of figure like get myself a
1: little calm down for this so amazing and so um <laughs> we will definitely be posting links to all of these things in our show oh, notes and um links to your book where's the best place for people to find you you're obviously on instagram at ashley piper uh, do you have a website as well
0: I have a website with my same name. Yeah, okay. Instagram's kind of the only social media platform I'm really active on. Um, but yeah, that's the best place to kind of chill and hang.
1: Well, I love Instagram. I'm, I'm on Twitter, but I'm not a huge fan and I'm starting to move away from Facebook. But I have to say I've made so many amazing connections, including this one with you via Instagram. Oh. So I'm super appreciative to that. I'm
0: appreciative to you. You're just like, I just wish you were here right now. And then we would just roll out. We'd just go and grab some drinks and have like a great day. You're just, you're a remarkable person. So oh, I feel thanks, very happy to, to be on here with you, Megan.
1: I have no doubt our paths are going to cross again. I just am so thankful for your time this morning. Thank you for the light that you are shining in the world and all the difference that you're making. I'm just so grateful to you. So keep doing what you're doing, please.
0: Oh, right back at you. Mwah.
1: Thank you for listening to Maximum Enthusiasm with Megan Hopman. Subscribe, check out our blog, and learn more at MaximumEnthusiasm.com.